Hey, architecture firm owners and emerging leaders, get ready for unparalleled insight into the development of a world-class architecture firm and a worldwide organization driving the digital transformation of the design and construction industry with Build Smart, the podcast that's changing how our profession operates. We share the incredible stories behind innovation in the building industry with my friend and co-host, Patrick McLaney, FAIA, former CEO of the international architecture firm, HOK. You know, Yamasaki's office or firm lasted during his lifetime. And when he passed away, I think that was the end of the Yamasaki office. Helmut did not want that. He wanted a firm that would live out and grow beyond the founders. In season one, discover the untold stories behind HOK's meteoric rise, from 150 employees in St. Louis to a powerhouse with over 1,900 staff members and 27 offices worldwide. You know, they weren't as polite as the Kojima people. That was just boom. And anytime you have a creditor, whether it's Kojima or the bank, that wants their money, unless you can raise money someplace else, you are out of business. Bankrupt. Bankrupt. And hold on tight for season two, where Patrick takes us on a new adventure as chairman of Building Smart International, shaping the future of digital transformation in the design, construction, and operation of built assets. Ian Howell, Ken Harold, and I, Ken was my technical representative from HOK. The three of us took a tour of Europe of five cities in five days. Very busy time. Simply follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Smart Now and uncover lessons that will transform you and your architecture firm. We developed a brand new tool for the Entree Architect community. It's called the Entree Architect Profit Calculator, and it's completely free. Just follow six simple steps, and within minutes, you'll know exactly how profitable your architecture firm is. Download the Entree Architect Profit Calculator right now for free at entrearchitect.com slash profit calculator. My name is Mark R. LePage, and you are listening to Entree Architect Podcast, where I speak with inspiring, passionate people who share their knowledge and expertise all to help you build a better business as a small firm entrepreneur architect. This is episode 261, and this week, we're getting deep. Buckle up for my conversation with James Gepner of Erase40.org, and we're talking about behavioral science and the value of the architect. This episode of Entree Architect Podcast is supported by our platform sponsors, Gusto. Gusto is refreshingly easy payroll, benefits, and HR for the modern small business. RCAT, the online resource delivering quality building material information, CAD details, BIM, specifications, and so much more at RCAT.com, and FreshBooks, the cloud-based accounting software that makes running your small firm easy, fast, and secure. Spend less time on accounting and more time doing the work you love. James Gepner, welcome to Entree Architect Podcast. Thank you for having me. It's it's good to have you. This is going to be a very interesting conversation. You and I have talked a couple of times off the uh, the air here, uh, which is why I wanted you to come here and talk to our audience because this is some exciting stuff you're doing. 
But let me introduce you before we get into any of that exciting stuff. James Gepner is executive director at Erase40.org. Following his years in project finance, where he evaluated companies and studied markets, James advised small and large companies on what's shaping a market or a behavior. Recently, he started Erase40.org to introduce demand for passive buildings using behavioral science. And I know a bunch of ears just perked up when they heard uh, passive buildings. So this is going to be an interesting story to many people who are listening. He is currently developing tools to help architects like us and builders in interactions with home buyers and developers. It's getting better, isn't it? <laughs> so they uh, can be better at identifying likely buyers and get prospects to place a higher value on the attributes of passive and other high-performance buildings. He's a graduate of NYU and SGIB's investment banking program. James, that's a little snippet of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, We want to learn a little bit more about you. We want to go a little bit deeper. So share your origin story. Where did you sort of discover your purpose and your passion? And give us the the story of your journey to, to where you find yourself today. Uh, sure. I mean, it's, it's, it's a kind of a simple one. Um, I've always thought people were extraordinarily strange. Uh, and, um, as a child, the things that they said um, relative to the way that they acted seemed to be in great contradiction. And I remember this occurring to me um, in the third grade. And I, I never ceased being like a dispassionate observer of people and just wondering how I could, as though I were a different species, uh, communicate with them. So I feel like I was a little bit of an, a Jane Goodall um, studying why people would behave the way they do. And that sent me down. I would basically voraciously consume anything um, that would start to penetrate some of those mysteries. And so whether it was, you know, economics was one thing that like, I thought, okay, this will start to explain people. Finance was another thing. This will explain people. Of course, psychology, social psychology, behavioral science. Like, so every field is like, okay, something has to start dispelling the mystery of why people act the way they do. Um, and I've, I've, um, always been just incredibly intrigued, um, to what drove people basically because fundamentally I felt, um, at odds with them. I didn't know how to comport with this strange species. <laughs> and so, so it wasn't like some idle curiosity. It's like, how do I make my way through the world? It was a survival uh, instinct. Yeah, 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 exactly. How, how old uh, were you when you, because you said that it was very early on that you discovered this. How old were you when you realized that, it, that, there, was, that there were uh, studies about this, that there were places that you can go and learn more about that, that it wasn't just sort of a curiosity from your point of view, but the study of the rest of your life. Well, I, you know, at first it was the, the sort of the earlier part of it was I started reading, um, nonfiction books at a very young age. Um, and, and it was just, you know, it's just started to make sense of the world to me. So I don't know how early that was, you know, um, larger adult books, like in, you know, fifth grade or something like that. Um, but it was really when I was walking through the library, my freshman year at college, when I discovered 
this like really out of the way area in the basement of the library, which had um, large compilations of different um, social science academic journals. Um, and I, um, I, I think for that entire year, I just went down and sat on the floor. There were no chairs in there. And I just sat on the floor and I would pull like 10 books and just peruse. Um, so I was just reading, rather than reading a textbook that, um, that tried to distill um, or create generalized findings out of the research, I was reading the specific experiments that they were doing. And I just, it was just like, oh my God, this is what I've been wanting all my life is, is seeing a human being under experimental conditions. Um, and I just ate that stuff up. <laughs> it's like fuel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like a kid in his and his uh, comic book collection. Yeah, you sort of just yeah, really was. bury yourself in it, and it just makes you happy. <laughs> exactly, that's exactly what it was like. So, yeah, so that that was a very big moment for me. Yeah. So, how did where what did you do? Where did it take you once you sort of discovered that and and realized that that was something that you wanted to dedicate your life to? Well, um, the you know, it was kind of a windy road from there. Um, I, I was, you know, constantly intrigued by the performative nature of being a person. Um, and so was always fascinated by drama, um, and felt like actors were almost like the truest people because that they were most explicit in their, um, in their, um, the fact that they were performing their lives. Um, and so I ended up in the film industry, um, and that made a really deep impression on me because I was, I was basically, my job was to choose stories out of hundreds and thousands of stories and, and pitch them to studio executives. Um, and so in that function, I had to really explain why one story over another was going to be the one that an audience wanted, um, where there was a real need, um, for whatever that story was delivering and how the need wasn't some superficial thing, but it was really going to drive people to do what they didn't need to do, which is leave their homes. Um, and, and, and it would do it at the urgency of which they would immediately tell other people because those first few weeks for a movie are so important that it'd tell other people and urge them to go see it. Mm within weeks. So it's, it was really kind of like thinking about, well, it's almost like when we study mass movements, mm -hmm. well, every, um, it's less true now, but, um, every movie released is almost like a study in a mass movement. You know, some movies may cost $200 million to make, but very few people want to see them. It doesn't get people to leave their homes and others do. And they seem extremely idiosyncratic in the reasons that they get people to move and, and talk about them and, and how they're affected by them. Uh, so that was the first, the first sort of foray into kind of applying some of these ideas and exploring them further. What was your focus at, at school? So that, that's NYU, right? You're talking about the, the basement? 
Well, that was that was because I went to NYU. Yeah. Right. But so what was, was my... your what was your focus there? What did you end up studying? Because you said there were lots of different directions. Yeah. No. Know. I yeah. I was it was it's um it seems bizarre in retrospect, but I retrospect, but I was um, but I was a film major. Okay. Um, and and so yeah, I went into the film industry and and there's you know the film industry is a extremely large industry, but my my sole focus was on. Um, whether it was a newspaper article, a play, a book, anything, just a verbal pitch was, this is the thing to do, or this is not the thing to do. And I would call up studio executives and speak with as much urgency as possible to get them generally to try to get them to write a check for anywhere from half a million dollars to $5 million within 24 hours. Um, so I'm basically trying to get them to commit to spend anywhere from 60, ultimately anywhere from 60 to $100 million to make a movie on the reinsurance that what I'm saying to them is correct. It's a lot of pressure. It was a lot of fun. (laughs) A lot of caffeine and a lot of fun. (laughs) So so where did that lead you? Because I I know pretty much, you you and I don't know each other deeply yet. We've talked a few times. Um, But I know where you are now. And so yeah. I'm trying to connect the dots because it's a very interesting life because what you're describing in your early years doesn't make sense that you end up where you are now. And so, right. so what happened after you are convincing these studio executives to spend $100 million? Sure. So I, I left the industry because I didn't want to move to L.A. Um, and, um, and I just, by a fluke, ended up in finance at an investment bank. How did that happen? Um, you know, I, um, I met a great guy who just said, uh, I know you don't know what direction you're going in, but, um, I'll put you through this training course that will change your life and whatever path you want to pursue, including if you want to stay in the film industry, um, it's going to help you. Um, and, and he was, it was an extraordinarily generous offer on his part. I didn't realize how generous at the time because I actually refused him like five times. Um, um, and he was absolutely right. And so I went through an investment banking training course um, and, and started studying markets. And immediately they put on my desk where I was going to, where I was going to basically monitor a project and the project was a $2.5 billion, um, um, project. And so it became very clear to me that my job was not to be wrong about <laughs> right. how a market was functioning. So, so your, so your job with the, with the movie, to, movie executives was an easy one, low pressure job compared to the, to the yeah. next step because the, the numbers got bigger and the, and the responsibility got bigger and the, and the weight on your shoulders was heavier. I want to say that it was, um, the movie industry was, um, it was, there was more noise to signal. So what, what in the sort of millions of data points makes you say, no, listen to this data point. This is why people are going to go to a movie. Mm -hmm. Whereas there's a methodology in finance, um, and um, and there are actually a lot of similarities between the two jobs. I found um, if you could if you could make sense of a situation um, and make it coherent in the film business, 
you did the same thing in finance with your, with your, um, your, you know, you're making a prediction. This is what's going to occur. And why are you correcting your prediction? Um, so finance, finance had a lot of similarities, um, but there was a lot more um, signal to noise than there was in the sort of chaotic world of storytelling and narrative and human psychology. Um, but I, I found finance to be, feel like where I thought it was going to be sort of cold and dry. Mm -hmm. I found it to be, to bring me to yet another explanatory level where I could understand, um, you know, I found it to be, you know, almost another branch of psychology. Um, and I could understand why people were doing certain things. I could understand markets. Um, and, and I loved it. I found the culture to mm. be bizarre. And yeah. I, I was wildly at odds with the culture. Um, again, because I felt like people have a performative nature and the people in finance, I felt like were, um, had adopted really poor roles. Um, the kind of um, machismo that they put on, I thought was like almost like a John Cleese skit. Yeah. Um, and the fact that so many people were doing that same John Cleese skit, but without the kind of laugh at the end. Right. Um, without the was, irony. Yeah, it was bizarre. <laughs> um, and uh, so that was, I was, I, I never got used to that. Yeah. It's, it's the, interesting how I work with a lot of finance people in the region that I work in. And it's very interesting. I've never noticed it until you just sort of said what you just said, that many of them are acting. You know, a lot of yep. them are sort of putting on a facade and pretending to be something that they're truly not because as an architect, you get pretty involved with people. And so you learn who they really are. But that facade very early on is very often not who they really are. Um, yeah. And so it's interesting to sort of make that connection. I think, you know, I, you know, airline pilots, when I was in finance, it all of a sudden made sense to me. You know, you sit down in a plane and they speak to you in their really slow, honeyed voice. You know, we're going to be going 30,000 feet. We'll be going 600 miles an hour. Take a rest, relax. If you get a little turbulence, we're going to go through a little bit of bumpy air. Everything's very mild. And that's her reason. There's a reason they don't tell you jokes. Um, because that would scare the hell out of us. Right. Um, and I, I found the same thing to be true in finance. People are, they speak in that slow honeyed voice to be like, everything is okay. We can, you know, we might be going through a few bumps here, but yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. all going to be all right. <laughs> yeah. It's very interesting. So, so you find yourself in that world and there's sort of a, I, I hear from what you're saying that there's a little bit of a conflict in your own mind that you love the study of the people who are there but the whole pursuing of profit for profit's sake sort of, and that's sort of my interpretation of it, there's sort of a conflict there that, that, that the culture of finance doesn't really uh, weigh out in terms of, of the people that you, the, the passion of what you, I would let you, you explain it. Yeah, no, I mean, I, am you, I right? Um, yeah, I know you point to an interesting thing that goes far sort of deeper than what I was leading to, but it's yeah. true. I, um, I find the skill set of finance to be amazing. Yeah. Um, but when you really start to apply that thinking, you can look around um, um, the business world and see a tremendous amount of uh, intellectual laziness um, so that um, there is an integrity to the methodology and there's a rigor to the methodology 
until you get to be like a big incumbent company and then everyone decides to accept some conventional thinking. So um, where finance is applied to me in my extraordinarily, it's a big field, my extraordinarily limited experience mm -hmm. is, um, is in the startup world. We are really asking fundamental questions. Uh, I mean, I think Uber is always a, a brilliant test case because Uber um, started a company and they didn't buy any cars. Right. They're like, here's an existing asset. So what's the utilization of that asset? Well, if we put a technology layer over this, you know, over these millions of existing cars, there isn't an additional dollar spent. What we have is higher utilization, so higher value of that existing asset for the owners of that asset. And so they will comply with these terms. And on the other side, we'll have ease of use and lower friction costs to adopting something and, and greater consistency via market so we can all get them to adopt a very narrow set of behaviors instead of, a, instead of alternative behaviors that are a little bit more difficult. And they'll adopt this thing and all of a sudden you have a market making technology platform and everyone is basically complying. Yeah. And so the questions that people had to ask in thinking about Uber, whether this is how they got the idea or not, um, really come down to some of the fundamentals in finance. And that to me is much more interesting than saying, you know, can GE, you know, lower its cost of capital or should they acquire, I mean, the acquisition thing is interesting because it gets into competitive theory, which is very interesting. But, you know, should they acquire some company or, you know, how does some large player lock out a competitor? That to me is, it's, it's, far less interesting. Yeah, I agree. It's that's more of a game whereas yeah. the other is a study. Exactly. Um, because it, and then when I when I described finance before, I was describing the game of finance because those are the I'm I'm north of New York City. I'm dealing with right. mar stock market and traders and, you know, they're they they're all about the game. Everything is a yeah. game. Yeah. Um, even, you know, their architecture project is a is a game to see how much they can get for as little as they can get it for. Right. Um, and if, as long as you're in, you're going to buy into that game and you get good at that game, then, then it, it all works out. Yeah. Uh, but if you're not expecting that, then you get steamrolled. Um, but you see it in some levels. I mean, you know, Warren Buffett's in the news all the time, but, and a lot of people talk about what made him successful and the conversations are really interesting. So I'm, I'm not being dismissive of, of all those conversations, but, um, you know, Warren Buffett applies finance almost at the level where you'd call it a philosophy yeah. and not a not a sort of day-to-day -day thing. So one of, in my, the way I think about it, and I use this tool, um, return on assets is a measure that you can look at someone, a company's uh, financial statements and come up with a calculation. And that's obviously a quantitative calculation. But you can think of the concept of return of assets in a uh, qualitative fashion and go, okay, return of assets over the next 20 years what is going to increase that number? Just we don't need to do any math. What is going to increase that number in the use of forestry products? Or here is a roof being put on. Or you know what is some trend line back to Uber? What is the re how do you increase the return on assets of all those cars that have been produced? And Uber is the answer. 
So when you start to look at return on assets, you start to be able to predict where markets are going when you look at it in a qualitative fashion. So, so basically that one little metric starts to give you a little bit of a crystal ball about where things are going. Yeah, I, I find this stuff so fascinating. I mean, you and I could talk for hours about this kind of stuff. Um, and you're, you're way more advanced than I'll ever be, but it's, it's, I love that study of how, how businesses thrive, which is why I started Entree Architect, because at the very lowest level, the architecture game was what I loved, the business part of it. You know, yeah. that, that if you follow the rules, you get good at it and you succeed. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, all the way up to, you know, big companies like Uber, how did they get to where they are? It's a fascinating exactly. study. And, and this, I don't know if this is a digression, but this conversation makes me think of one thing, which is, of course, Digress away, because this is, this is my show and I'm, <laughs> I'm having a good time. So, <laughs> right, right. So, so, uh, so one of the things that bugged me when I was at the investment bank and continued to bug me because I saw it was even more extreme than I initially had thought, and this is relevant to, I think, probably most of your listeners, is that there are people with expertises that are extremely valuable and that unless you are at a company that is making about, I want to say, you know, I throw out a some number, $200 million in revenue or more a year, mm-hmm. probably higher you not only cannot access those skill sets, you might not ever hear of them. So, you know, one, uh, to put that another way, is if Pepsi has a very small challenge that um, it wants to cut its, cut its costs by one-tenth of one percent, or it has a little problem in one market, it's still doing well, the trend lines are going on. It has a little problem in one market, and it'd be, it'd be nicer if the problem were solved. Um, if they have those problems, they can throw an army of experts, hundreds of people at that small problem. And if you're a builder or an architect, or if you're any other company that's under that $200 million a year, you don't have any access to those skill sets. And, and the thing is, because the, the innovation is done at that lower level, because um, the um, creativity is there, and because a lot of the sustainability efforts are also there, um, it just was galling to me that, that there was this cutoff where people had no ability to get that kind of help because of the way the firms that would offer that expertise were structured and how they serve their clients. And just going back to Pepsi, you know, Pepsi sells diabetes um, and it can get all the help at once. Uh, builders and architects in the passive house space are selling a livable future and they're pretty much on their own. Yeah. And to me, to me, that's a problem. So, so, that's what you're currently working on, right? I mean, that's, that's the problem you're currently working on with the race 40. Right. So that, that, yeah. So that was one of the reasons why I wanted to found a race 40. Yeah. yeah. So how did you, how did you get from the financial worlds to, to a race 40 to where you are now? So I started consulting and in a very ad hoc way. Um, and, um, you know, initially people were just asking for help with their business models um, or asking me to write a business plan or help them with uh, pitching to investors. And I did that, you know, on and off for like, I, I think 10 years or so. 
Um, and then I started a company with my business partner, Big Yellow Cab, and we're like, let's focus on um, the combination of finance and behavioral science. Um, and, you know, we're a startup, so we need clients. But let's try to focus on, uh, on environmental behaviors. Um, and then um, in, that, in that interim, a couple of architects that I know were asking me questions. And as, you know, this just happens where people start asking me a question, I just start thinking about an industry more and more and more until I can't help myself. And I wrote, you know, about a 40-page analysis on the passive house space and what were some of the going to be some of the triggers and thresholds to get the market to take off? Um, what would lead to full adoption? The question of, you know, was it going to be price or was it going to be policy or what number of things? Both of those things, I think, are incorrect. Um, but um, once I did that, one of my recommendations was, you know, the, the passive house area is not going to go anywhere until the fragmentation problem is solved. And the way to solve the fragmentation problem is to create an entity that is a nonprofit, so it can be a funding vehicle to create initiatives that can be broadly applicable to all architects and builders and others in this space. So that even though it's still fragmented, it can function like one coordinated entity and therefore be more competitive um, and solve some problems that weren't being addressed. And after I wrote that report, I just thought, you know, there's no more, no one more convinced but by what I asserted in that report than I am. So why don't I start that entity? And that's and that's ultimately why I started Race Forty. So, so you should also add. Go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I was just going to to clarify that basically you've built the army, Pepsi's army, for architects and builders who are pursuing uh, passive house. Yes. to try to get people to understand why it is what it is and why it's important to adopt and how to how to do that i have i have uh, architects come to me all the time saying you know i'm passionate about passive house but my clients don't want it right and so what do i do and right. so that's what you're you're pursuing is to sort of give that give those architects and those builders the the information they need and the approach and the understanding of behavior and what's going to make this light on fire like right. a blockbuster film we can do the same thing with passive house exactly yeah exactly and and that what i found is you know you and i were talking about earlier what i found is that when i approach people to be in that army um whether the people in finance or economists or behavioral um behaviorists um Everyone says yes. Yeah. Everyone's interested. And, and people who don't have to say yes. People, people, who, 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 people who are at very high levels, you know, yeah. they're comfortable with what they're doing. They're, they're well paid. They have power. They're, they're interested in pursuing this. Yes. Yeah. I, I'm finding myself in the rooms with some very impressive people. And it's, 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 uh, it's, I find it both hilarious and a little bit intimidating. Um, but, but even more specifically to the point that you just made, it's, it's helping them. But um, I want to put like a, a finer point on it, mm -hmm. which is it's not just helping them. What I want to do is get firms to be at capacity in terms of the number of passive house projects they're doing per year. And I want them to be confident that we know what the market is, that we know how to access that market, 
We know how to draw people through um, from the beginning of that meeting to the end where they're making strong commitments and where they're recognizing the value of these projects and that the firms have don't have this um, burden that they have right now of, of going, how do I sell these things? And the burden of meeting with prospect ever, uh, after prospect where um, the people end up saying no or they might say yes for a while but float away and, and there's a situation where the architects and builders bear this tremendous burden of, of pitching constantly mm-hmm. and not being able to do the thing that they really love and that they're great at, which is designing and building these buildings. So, so to me, like having a very clear end game is important. Um, and, and I don't think that end game is even remotely unreasonable. I think it, you know, given the, given the size of the market, um, and given the relatively small number of people that do zero energy and passive house buildings, that that should be a fairly easy objective to achieve. Why choose passive house and not environmental building as a whole? Well, um, in some senses, I want to say that I'm agnostic about what the technology is. Um, it's just from what I know so far. And our tools, our tools are really should work for anyone in the zero energy space. Um, so I'm not like necessarily picking one technology over, but from what I know, and I focus on passive house, um, it is simply the best way to get there. Um, I myself have a lot of thoughts about how it can be further improved. Um, from both a use perspective and from a standard perspective. Um, but, um, and, and there are things that I think if I told, you know, I, I could sort of like hear the, the response in some people who have worked very hard on that standard going, who is this idiot? <laughs> uh, but, if I, but if I actually sat down and said what those changes are, I don't think I'd get much resistance because the core of the standard, yeah. I think it's amazing. Um, there's just a couple of things that I think can be added on that from a market perspective uh, would make the uptake a lot, a lot easier. We'll be right back to our conversation after this quick break to say thank you to our platform sponsors at Entree Architect. Gusto, RCAP, and FreshBooks. Payroll and benefits are hard, especially when you're a small business. You don't have time to be an expert in things like taxes and regulations. And old school payroll providers, they just don't get it. They aren't built for the way that we work today. Gusto is making payroll benefits and HR easy for small businesses. They're different. Modern technology does the heavy lifting, so it's easy for you to get things right. You no longer have to be a big company to get the great technology, those great benefits, and the great service for your team. To help support this show, the Entree Architect podcast, Gusto is offering our listeners an exclusive limited time deal. Sign up today and you'll get three months, three months free. Once you run your first payroll, just go to entrearchitect.com slash gusto and claim your free three months of payroll processing today. Entrearchitect.com slash gusto. For years, when I needed information on manufacturers products, I headed straight to Google. 
Then I sifted through the hundreds of results to find the one or two that might be the link to the product that I'm looking for. And more often than not, the link was not what I was seeking. It was outdated or didn't meet my requirements. So I went back to the search engine and started all over again. And this could take all afternoon to find the two or three products that I need. Does this sound familiar? I know you've done this. There is a better way. It's called RCAT. RCAT.com. A-R-C-A-T.com. Find what you're looking for in seconds. Building product information, BIM, CAD, and custom specifications using their exclusive tool, SpecWizard. So make RCAT part of your efficient project workflow. Just type in entrearchitect.com slash RCAT in the internet browser and add that to your favorites. Just click that little favorites button, make RCAT your favorites, and then visit RCAT for every project. Make it part of your workflow. Find what you need fast and make more money on every project. entrearchitect.com slash RCAT. That's entrearchitect.com slash A-R-C-A-T. FreshBooks makes it simple to send invoices, post your expenses automatically, track your time for your whole team, buy project, and get organized with reports, communication, and notifications. Getting started with FreshBooks is ridiculously easy. Most people send their first invoice just seconds after starting their free trial. And the same goes for time tracking, managing expenses, collaborating with contractors, and viewing financial reports. It's fast and easy. And if you need help at any time, free award-winning customer service is just a phone call or an email away. And if you ever have second thoughts, don't worry. On top of our free trial here for Entree Architect listeners, you get a 30-day money-back guarantee so you don't ever have to worry about choosing FreshBooks. So give FreshBooks a try. Try it free for 30 days. Just visit EntreeArchitect.com FreshBooks and then let them know that we sent you by sharing Entree Architect in the How Did You Hear About Us section. That's EntreeArchitect.com slash FreshBooks to access your free, unlimited 30-day trial. Gusto, RCAT, and FreshBooks. Please visit our platform sponsors today and thank them for supporting you, the Entree Architect community. Right. What, what are the things that, what are some of the, the things that you are um, approaching passive house with that architects who as a whole could understand because what you're talking about is is trying to convince a market that there's a value to building this way Correct. and so that's something that any architect if you if they understood what you're doing for passive house and environmental building or zero energy building um, that they can apply to architecture at large because that's a complaint constantly with small firm architects is the market doesn't understand who we are and what we do. Right. So how do we educate them? That's usually the term is how do we teach them what they should know in order for us to be able to do what we do? Right. Okay. So, so let me just dive into some behavioral science. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> and, and, and acknowledging that um, the point of doing so isn't to convert architects and builders into behavioral scientists, but um, just to take this big ball of spaghetti and start to disentangle some of the things so that we can go through them one by one and tackle them. So, um, so if, we, if we think about um, 
uh, if we think about, let's just focus on um, the custom home market yeah, great. Uh, as an example. And, and I'll be referring to the meeting map, which is the tool that we've developed um, that um, uh, is designed to pretty dramatically increase the rate of adoption of Passive House. Um, it has other benefits too. Um, another benefit is, of course, if they're adopting Passive House, it means because um, um, the people are gladly accepting increased construction costs. Although, you know, of course, that's a debate about whether there is always going to be increased construction costs. Yeah. But that's that to me is less significant. It's important that they do accept it. And the reason they've accepted it is because they've placed higher value on the outcomes. Which custom, so, a custom home market is the same, is that they know they're going to pay more in order to get that custom home. Right, right. So that's, so, that's, a, that's um, a baseline. Yes, exactly. So, um, so again, if we think of a firm as two machines, um, being comprised of two machines, two systems, one system is to create buildings, another system is to create clients. You can't create the buildings unless you get the clients. And again, just focused on the home, the custom home market. Um, so the problem is um, the difference between actual value and perceived value. Um, so um, a person walks into the, into the meeting and there is an actual value of the outcomes, right? We're not making it up. If we start a startup that solves some of the problems, address some of the problems, some of the needs that um, that people have, and we went to Wall Street with that business plan, we'd, we'd get investors. They'd apply a methodology and go, oh, you're, you're affecting sleep in this way. You're affecting um, risk of respiratory illness this way. Um, you're affecting focus this way. Okay, there's a, this is, there's a market here. There's a need. And we can charge people for that. We can value what that addressing that need will do. So there's an actual value and there's a perceived value. And the problem is, for a variety of reasons, um, which I'll start to enumerate, um, people, there's a really large delta between that actual and perceived value. So people, home buyers, walk into that meeting and they start to make a lot of very predictable and systematic errors. Um, and so have, the, have that have that lower perceived value. Now, that sounds like really bad news, but it's actually, we're in the situation, right? The circumstance is, the status quo is what it is. So that actually turns out to be really good news. Because a, 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 a client typically would walk into a meeting like that armed with years and years of watching HGTV and what HGTV is teaching them about what we are and how we do what we do. Yeah, that is a great example. Um, if you... Um, if you, this is a slight digression. So HGTV. So if, if you're, a, if you're a, a football coach of a professional team and you're, it's the game before the Super Bowl, um, and you're down by a couple points and it's third down, you have the ball and you have to decide to call a running play or a passing play, right? So what are you going to do? You have all sorts of, so where are you on the field? Um, you know, what players are healthy, what, who, what players are sort of having a good day, what is the probability of interception or a fumble? You have all these calculations. Right, where, where, the, where is the momentum? Who has the momentum? Who has the momentum? You're, you're making a prediction. Yeah. So the thing is, a decision is a prediction about the future, right? And so you're making that football coach is making a prediction. So what if that football coach, instead of thinking about all those probabilities, and their knowledge of the game over the last 40 years and their study and their their plays said, I'm going to look at tarot cards. 
Um, and and I'm going to base it on if if I if I turn up a blue card, I don't know anything about tarot cards. So mm-hmm. if I turn up a blue card or you know some kind of symbol, I'm going to call a passing play. Then that is an irrelevant variable. We would think that's laughable, and we wouldn't bet on the team of a coach that did that. And yet, the people who are following the procedure by HGTV, they walk into a home and go, "Oh, I like blue paint." Well, that is a variable that has nothing to do with their respiratory health, the how solid the foundation is, the quality of the systems of the building. Um, the the likelihood that their children will be able to focus when they study after school, um, the resale value, none of that matters. And so um, the decision quality of those HDTV folks is so painfully bad. Um, And yet, um, basically, we're indoctrinated in the set of ideas that cause people to make decisions based on information that is wholly irrelevant to what our outcomes will be, which is why if you look at outcomes, why there are default rates and mold problems and people needed to refinance to buy a new furnace and all these bad outcomes are, are, can be reduced by improving our decision quality. And the fact that so many people encounter those bad outcomes, waiting on Saturday for a repair person, you know, all these things um, are, are the product, at least in part, of poor decision quality. So the question is, like, you know, why aren't people looking at those outcomes? Why don't they make better decisions? And, um, and so, you know, architects and builders see things on the ground. They, they, they see, you know, um, they see people come in and say, can we use less insulation or double pane windows to cut down on costs? They, they, they see, oh, but my mother-in-law says this. And so I've heard that know, line, <laughs> you know, choosing what the mother-in-law says about the house over the experts. Um, and yeah, again, all this translates into these higher costs for architects. So, you know, I, I think the place to begin, um, is with this notion, is it you or is it them? Right. Um, if it's you, then, oh, I didn't do a good job of explaining passive house. I wish I were a better salesman. Uh, I'm looking for that magic bullet line where I can say that converts people. Um, if I had only if I only could afford a CMO, um, if it's them, oh, they're indecisive. They don't know what they want. All they care about is costs and backsplashes um, and you know, I think the place to begin is by saying this is the wrong question, that our behavior is actually greatly influenced by our context. Um, it's greatly influenced by ex- factors external to us. So having a person say, oh, that person's cheap or that person's indecisive, that's, that's trying to find an attribute within the person that's driving the behavior. And, and the question, of course, always is what's within our control? Right. And what's within our control is we can influence the environment in which the decision is made. So, so this is what the meeting map is about, and this is what a lot of our work is about, is figuring out what, what are the barriers that are preventing the best decision, and can we go through those barriers one by one and knock them off so the person makes a better decision, right? And, and, and it's the better decision sounds like a value call, but it's not because... 
when you look at the value of the outcomes, they're universally recognized outcomes. Everyone wants health. Everyone wants to be able to focus. Everyone wants to be able to wake up in the morning and feel good because they slept well. So these are universal outcomes. These aren't some subjective or arbitrary things. So the question is, what are those systematic and predictable errors? Um, and how do we influence them? So there's, you know, people use price as a proxy for affordability. They discount energy and repair savings. They have a bias towards the familiar. Um, they value, uh, this is a big one, going back to the HGTV. They evaluate what's easy instead of what's important. That is a tendency. And they don't know they're doing it. Right. Because right. these are unconscious biases. Um, again, they don't, they don't differentiate between the expert's advice, the architect or builder who has tremendous training in this and does this for a living and sees all these problems and the solutions every day. Um, instead, they go, oh, my Uncle Joe said this. <laughs> and, and Uncle Joe just has opinions about everything. <laughs> right, <laughs> so, right. Um, and, uh, and then, of course, they make one-to-one price comparisons between the conventional house and the passive house. Um, one example of that is, um, is you know, we, so we all use reference points, right? Um, if I ask you, how wealthy are you? It's more likely that you're going to go back to your, um, your, the people that you knew in college and to see how wealthy they are now, um, and say, oh, okay. Um, I knew this guy, Gus, he's this wealthy and, and compare yourself to Gus as opposed to go, well, I'm relative to Bill Gates. I'm very poor. So it's more likely you're going to take, you know, a, choose unconsciously a reference point. You're not going to go back and actually consciously think about Gus. You're just going to go, oh, I'm, I'm doing well or I'm doing poorly based on how well Gus is doing. You're not going to go, oh, Bill Gates or a person um, who, you know, lives, um, you know, as a rural farmer in Chile. You know, you're not going to do that. Um, so we, we, have, we have this tendency to unconsciously pick a reference point. And so when people look at MLS or they watch HGTV, they come up with a pool of reference points that are completely irrational. Um, and one example is like if you're going to go, and I think, um, I think you and I might have spoken about this in the past, is if you go and look for a 10-speed um, and you go, oh, the 10-speeds, it's a used 10-speed, it's $200. And then you go onto a car lot and look at a brand new BMW. And it's like, oh my God, $65,000 for this car. It's so expensive. Well, they do different things. Just because they're both called transportation means there should be a one-to-one -one comparison. And you can see, and this is one thing that we want to pull people through. You can see the errors that people make. You, or you can correct the errors by going, well, what are you trying to do? Are you trying to commute in Key West? a half mile or do you live in Maine and you want to take clients to different locations in the middle of winter? So one does the job and one doesn't. So it's about what are you trying to do and what are the outcomes? Um, and then all of a sudden you realize that reference point that the $65,000 BMW might not be expensive at all for what you're trying to do. And the 10 speed doesn't work at all. And so that's just an absolutely absurd comparison. And it's certainly an absurd comparison 
when you are looking at a house and think, okay, here's a conventional house, you know, built in the fifties and here's a passive house that I'm going to, you know, have built. So having that 1950s house as a reference point is no less absurd than comparing the 10 speed to the BMW. So how do you, so how do you change that? How do you control? You said you, we need to control the environment. How do we do that? So, um, so what the, so the meeting map does is basically has, um, uh, it breaks the meeting down into five stages. Um, and, and, um, there's pre-evaluation questions that anticipates all those predictable barriers. Um, so it takes people through five stages for the, for the prospect. They don't see any of this. Like it's a seamless meeting to them. They don't have any point right. of comparison. Right. You're just, it's like, you're just designing the meeting to design to, en- to end up where you want it to be. Exactly. So I'm basically designing a decision environment where all those barriers, all those sort of errors and thought are less likely to occur where people don't experience an aversion to the unfamiliar because they're not presented with things that are unfamiliar, where they don't discount the future because we've made the future in a very, through a a variety of means, we've made the future seem both present and real to them so they can make a decision on that basis. So they can see those outcomes and go, oh, that's urgent to me right now. Um, so that they can see um, the cost profile in a completely different light so they're not making a financial error. Um, so it takes all these things and anticipates all of them and then comes up with a remedy of them. And it does so by structuring this meeting into five stages where there's questions sent out in advance in the meeting. Um, that information collected will be used, sort of deployed very strategically throughout the meeting. Again, seamless to the client. Um, and then there's careful instructions about what occurs when the prospect first walks in the door, um, how you greet them, how you control the meeting, how you don't allow them to preempt your meeting. Um, which is like the comparison I make there is you do what a doctor does. It's like they have their process and you walk in there and you might want to say your elbow hurts, but they don't, they go, they want to hear your family history first. It's like, okay, we're going to talk about your elbow, but let's get your family history you know, how old were your grandparents when they died? Are your parents still alive? Any, any, um, diabetes or heart disease in your family, they go through the process and you let them because they are the experts. So that there's very specific instruction about that in that stage two. So with that stage two, you're sort of taking people who come in on one track because Mm -hmm. they've, they've been put on this track with their past experiences and you're, you're deliberately and strategically shifting them off their track onto your track so you can now present the other steps the tracks is so what you just said is actually extremely advanced behavioral science and correct (laughs) that's called a channel factor and yes that's exactly right um uh it continually pushes them onto a track is a really good way of thinking about it if if there's if we if we put it out in a i know it's called a meeting map so i don't want to overuse the analogy of a map but if, if you lay out train tracks on a, on a map or see an illustration of it, you can go towards the wrong destination or go towards the right one. And where you start to divert early prevents them from making later mistakes. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that's a strategic step to yes. make sure that they don't get to where they're ultimately going to go if you don't get them off of that track 
Exactly. And they'll end up where you want them to be because you get them onto your track early. Exactly. It's so at various junctures, it's like, okay, here's a juncture, push them here. Here's a juncture, pull it. And there are a variety of tools deployed to do that. Some of them are, I mean, they're all going to be, again, inconspicuous to, um, to the prospect. So, um, so yeah, so one by one, it's like it, it lowers the inhibiting pressures. Um, and, and, and really what it does is, is basically say, okay, let's acknowledge the person we have in front of us. Um, we are not perfect cost benefit analysis machines. We have an idiosyncratic way of coming up with information. Um, a lot of people have heard Daniel Kahneman's work on system one and system two where of our brain where one part of our one system one is, is very automatic, fast, beyond our conscious control, effortless, has lots of shortcuts, and system two is very deliberative. You know, we might think that we can give people information and they'll choose the deliberative path. So if we say, here's some statistic on Passive House, they'll be deliberative, deliberative about it and go, okay, so that's the better option for me. But um, the system one, system two is a really great way of thinking about the brain and how we make decisions because um, the brain is a very, um, it's an energy saving device. We get, we, get to, we get a lot of computational power out of the amount of energy that we use. And system one is the one we use about 95% of the time. So that's a really long way of saying when you give them the stat about um, a passive house, it's very um, likely that that will be meaningless in terms of behavior. Right, right. So what's the alternative to that? Because that's typically what we would do, right? We'd come armed with all this information to teach them and, again, educate them on what's valuable that they yeah. should. Now that you know what's important, you should choose this option. But they're not going to choose right. that option. Yeah, they're not going to choose that option. Knowledge is, knowledge is only, knowledge does not correlate to behavior. Knowledge is really only the beginning. So how you do it is you make things, the term is salience. Um, I mean, it's a common term, but in behavioral science, you use it in a very specific way, which means is, is the notion that you're presenting to them readily available? Can they access it? Does it comport with what's known? Um, does it have emotional resonance? Will they, rem you know, will they, I mean, it's all those slightly different concepts, will they remember it? Um, so you convert things that might be informational and say, okay, these things might have informational value, but, but they're not going to have behavioral value. And you, you allow the customers, because, you know, architects are, and builders in the passive space are very, both credible and very good about wanting to be transparent and provide all information. So you allow the information to be had. Um, but in the meeting, you go, okay, let's go for, let's measure things uh, for what has behavioral value. Um, and so in stage three, just going back to the meeting, in stage three, you walk them through a, a booklet that we've made that, um, that looks at ways to evaluate a house. Um, and, and what that does is allows them to both see the house, what they, it allows them to see basically um, how the decision they're making now, what that will have for their long-term outcomes. It allows them to make a connection between the decision and the long-term outcomes. So they're looking, at, they're looking at their future. You're presenting them with their future. Exactly. It's they're looking at their future and basically seeing a path to get there before they had no basically decision criteria. And also now they have decision criteria 
And what you do in that meeting with them is you ask them, would you like to make this one of your criteria? criteria? And then they commit to that in front of you. So now they've just made a public commitment to look at a house a certain way. There are five sections in that booklet where they can do that, where they can make a commitment to look at a house this way. If they even say yes on one, you're good. Because now, um, if they go to a conventional house, that house will fail um, on each one of them. And so even though it was a very sense, all they're saying is, I will evaluate a house this way, this thing is important to me. And But instantly, so many alternatives that were just available to them as far as you know, existing homes or conventional new builds, they just completely went away. So because they completely went away, they're no longer a reference point between a conventional and passive home. They're, they're connecting solidly to what am I trying to do? Well, this is a value. This is a future that I choose. I choose a future with more usable space because there's not cold zones, there's not hot zones. I'm not gonna have to close a bedroom because there's chills. I'm not gonna have drafts. That's, that's so, so they've just chosen that. And because you've just given them the ability to evaluate houses, they can go take this booklet and you, you give it to them so they can take it. So it's like, go, you know, when, as you tour other houses, as you continue to think through this process, go ahead and meet with other architects, take this booklet with you and when they test their other options against what they've just committed to, those options fail. That's very interesting. So, so you're not trying to sell them on, on passive house, quote unquote, or some this big technology that we're going to design this entire house based on this. You're, you're breaking it down to the, um, the comfort level and the behavioral piece of it and the emotions that go along with that and, and have them commit to those items and so when they go compare it to other things, they, uh, they're, not, they're no longer comparing it to the HGTV. Now you've given them something else that they've committed exactly. to, that this is, they've identified that this is who I am and this is what I want. So now I can, and when I compare it to other things, I'm not going to get that. Exactly. You've created a decision environment where they can see what's valuable to them, see what's important to them. I, I went to... I went to Roger Williams University in Rhode Island for architecture school. I, I went there in 2000, uh, no, in 1989 was my year that I came in. In 1988, they built a brand new architecture building and it was f freshly accredited. It was brand, brand new architecture school. The, the teachers were enthusiastic and young and energetic and full of hope and seeing the future. And that was the first school that I visited. And Every other school after that, the best schools in the country were compared to that school, which was brand new, had no reputation because it had a new building, it had enthusiastic teachers, the studio was amazing, the students who were walking through the halls were excited. I compared everything to that building and those people, and I had made my decision before I even went to the other schools because this right. was where I wanted to be. Right. And so when you're talking about that in terms of trying to set reference points that you're now going to compare everything else to, that, that idea came to me, that I went to architecture school based on that first meeting, and my yeah. reference point now was that architecture school and those people. And so yeah. I made the decision to go there even before I visited any other school. Yeah. No, that's exactly right. I, you, just, you made a couple of really important points there. Um, 
one one that you said initially is about selling and it's right you're not you're not selling at all that's kind of the point you're saying you're sitting across from a person and you're saying you're not claiming to be an expert you are an expert and you're saying here is a decision that's before you and here are different futures and i want you to pick the best one for you and i'm going to help you pick the best one for you. I'm going to clear away some of the clutter for you so that you can see a path. So I'm not selling you. I'm your ally in this decision. Yeah, you're their guide. Yeah, I'm your guide. You can go meet with other architects. I might even refer you to one and 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 think about the decision. And by virtue of doing that, um, architects are already, in my experience, architects and builders, are, in my experience, already have a great deal of sort of credibility. That's like a no BS crowd in the passive house space. Um, and the meetings I witnessed have been very good. Um, so taking that even further, like increasing that person's trust in you, seeing that you're an ally, seeing that you're credible. So when they go talk to Uncle Joe and some of your in-laws, they go, you, you have no standing here. You're not a source of information. Right. You know, I have this ally here that's helping make a decision. Yeah. They gave me a referral to another architect if I want to go talk to them. Because now I have this tool where I can make a choice. And so now what do I do as that prospect who's just been handed this information? Um, I want to reciprocate. I'm like, wow, you just really helped me. I now see the value of this home. Um, in the next stages, we talk about the, your particular product and then make plans. So we haven't talked about stages four and five of the meeting map, but those occur. But I want to reciprocate. I see that you offer homes that deliver these attributes to me, which I've now valued. And I also trust you. Um, and for other reasons that are other aspects of the meeting map um, that talk about listening style and receptivity, I'm you have been extremely receptive to what I've said via listening style. And that has caused me to be, when you speak, to be extremely attentive to what you're telling me. So I'm not just, things aren't just floating past me. The information is really sinking in where it's information. Um, and the points you're making are really sinking in. So yeah, you've created a decision environment where they walk out the other end and say, I see the value of this. More construction costs, sure. Why wouldn't I? It's a different thing. And, 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 you know, the construction costs, because of what the meeting map does, they can focus then on the cost is not the point. It's what the monthly, of course, what we all know, it's the monthly payment. And so I'm really only looking at two limiting factors, the monthly payment, which is less than the conventional and the, and then the down payment. So I'm only talking about, you know, for the down payment, 20%, maybe or 30% of that construction premium for the values that you've just prevented pre presented to me for the outcomes of a future that I really want. Oh my God, that's nothing. Yeah. So you've just created a, a person who is, has durable commitments and sees the value of what you're doing. Yeah. This is su super interesting. Um, and which is why this is getting very long. It's, it, it, um, what are the next, ne the next two st stages? Um, so we can we can get those sure. in because I, I want to make sure uh, that we don't lose people because it's, right. it's getting getting long. So um, what's what's the fourth stage? 
So the fourth stage is, okay, we've now gone through that, that ways to evaluate a house where they've made commitments. That's the third stage. The fourth stage comes closest to be like your typical meeting. Now there are guidance about how to conduct that, but it's the way you like, how many bedrooms do you want? Um, so we give instructions about how to handle that, but it's very much like a conventional meeting. Um, and you show, you show your product, your product one sheet that we've developed that allows the contrast so they can contrast, um, the outcomes versus the, um, versus the conventional home. So that you've just taken the concepts and the principles out of that, um, evaluation tool. And now you're saying, okay, and we deliver it in our product. And then the fifth stage, um, the fifth stage is about commitments. So, um, or I should say about next steps. So it's getting people to put like the next conversation to the calendar It's being very specific about what happens next. So there's no confusion when you give people going back to what you described earlier, giving people a channel by which their next behavior is like, okay, our next conversation, here's what's going to occur. It's in the calendar. I'm going to follow through. It's not there. It's not uncertainty. There's not going to be delays. It's, there's not going to be float away. So people are going to have an intention and they're going to follow through with those intentions. So, so, instruction. so are you getting commitment in stage three? Is that, are they committing to in, pursue it? They're, they're making a commitment to evaluate a house a certain way. Right. Okay. But because they're evaluating a house a certain way, that reveals the value of your services. Then you follow through with those things in stage four. Um, and talk about the specifics of their needs and what they want and have a conversation. And there's, there's a very specific instruction about right. what, how to answer, um, technology questions, how to answer different questions come up. We've, we've, we have a, a playbook that says in this situation, respond this way. That's all consistent with behavioral science and evidence base. Um, and then, yeah, and that fifth stage is, is like, okay, great. We're going to talk again in two weeks. We pick a date. This is what we're going to do in that conversation. And then you're off. And hopefully not only have you reduced the time, not have you increased their commitments, their likelihood of going with you, you've converted them to a passive house client. Um, and you've hopefully, um, decreased the window that gets to referral and the window that goes to contract. I'm sorry, not referral uh, the uh, retainer, um, or the window to get to contract. Um, and you've also decreased your email load of all those sort of technical questions that come up. So it should accomplish all of those things. Yeah. Cause once, once they trust in you because you've gone through this process, now you're their trusted guide to, to experience this, this journey they're going to go on. Um, they no longer have to second guess your decisions. You can yeah. start making those decisions with confidence and they will have confidence in you. You will have confidence that they have confidence and, uh, and the job will go smoother. Exactly. And I think, you know, one thing that's that simplifies all this is that our question tends to be, how do we sell more of these or how do we increase the number of people that will opt for the passive house? But if we flip that question, it illuminates the situation a lot more. It's how do we make this behavior commonplace? And we ask that question, how do we make it commonplace? What we, what we suddenly see is that there are inhibiting factors and all, again, all we have to do is go one by one through those inhibiting factors and go, let's take them off. And those inhibiting factors have everything to do with our inability to see the, the value of these outcomes and not to do with actual limitations in cost. Um, so, um, so yeah, it's like this, this aims to make that behavior commonplace. Yeah. 
what's your vision? What's your vision for Erase 40? What's the, what's the end game here? Well, you know, the thing about policy is that it's limited by national boundaries and you don't know what's going to occur. The other problem with policy is that you're an architect or builder with skin in the game that's working your butt off to do this and with this huge skill set. And you're like, yeah, but I have no influence here. These are, this is a thing that, you, that architects and builders can do. It's within their control. And because it's not policy, there's no national boundaries. So we can go to South America and Europe and Canada. Um, so um, these tools can go beyond boundaries. And the more there is widespread adoption of even these principles, it's easier to even pass those policies. So, I mean, you know, I, my, I think my end game is the same as a lot of people's end game, which is the eradication of the conventional building. Yeah. Uh, that's what I was hoping you were going to say. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. a big, it's a big vision. And, and it's, you know, it's a, but it's a, you know, it's like when you're setting a strategy and you're setting a course, you know, what's the course that's clear, you know, it's like when you're a cancer researcher, you sign on because you want to cure cancer. Not because you necessarily think that you're going to be the person that does it. You just want to advance the baton. Now, cancer is a hell of a lot harder than what we have in front of us. This is pretty solvable. We have the, we have the tools available. There are existing procedures and process and interventions that we can adopt in this area that have already proven elsewhere to be effective. All we have to do is use them. So, um, so it's a big vision, but I think it's completely feasible. Yeah, I agree. I, 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 you know, as you go through these steps and you, and you sort of teach what you're teaching, um, you can, you can think, okay, well, if, if we can get every architect to, because this isn't about adopting passive house or this this special elite, you know, special way of designing, this is about, um, um, designing buildings the way they should be designed. Right. Every architect yes. should be designing in a way that's environmentally friendly and sustainable and ultimately zero energy because it's right. just the way it's going to be. It's just a matter right. of when we when do we get there. And so exactly. the quicker we can have the the um, the the consumer adopt these methods, then we can do what we do the best way we can do it. Exactly. Which, Once the end user assigns value to these outcomes there is a market signal that just ripples through the entire value chain and supply chain. It goes all the way up to, it goes builders and architects, funders, banks, institutional investors, policymakers, it just shoots right up there. Um, so, um, so yeah, it should, it should make a big difference. I, I should, I want to add one, um, sort of clarifying point too, because, you know, some people have uh, approached me and said, yeah, but, um, you know, I'm a passive house architect or builder, and most of my prospects come to me already know about passive house, or already want a passive house. So is this tool applicable to them is, is sort of the implication. Because right. the tendency would be to think I don't need it because the people are already walking in the door. Um, so in my view, um, this is applicable to those firms as well, because the, the when you look at the constraints and the barriers, the reasons why people don't opt for passive house, People that know about Passive House already or even say they like Passive House, the barriers for them is nearly identical to the people who don't know about Passive House. So all this this system, um, this tool, um, should get those people over the hurdles just like they do a person who's never even heard of this technology. 
Super interesting. Super interesting. Before we wrap up here, what's, uh, what's one thing that a small firm architect can do today to build a better business for tomorrow? So it's a great question. Uh, I think a lot about this. Um, I would say that um, what every, every company is a decision-making apparatus, right? So here's one very accessible tool that everyone has available to them to improve their decision-making, um, which is, it's called backcasting. So we tend, when looking from the present moment forward when we're planning, to be less accurate in our predictions than if we imagine that we're forward in time, another place in time. So imagine we're two years in the future, and this is the exercise. Imagine you're two years in the future, and look back and say, okay, we've just achieved our end game, which is building at passive houses at capacity. Let's just say that's, let's just say that's the end game. Yeah. We've succeeded. What steps did we take to get to this future moment? And like name those four to 10 steps, you'll see those steps more clearly if you do that backcasting than if you try to look forward from the present moment to the future. So you'll see them more clearly and then do the second part of the exercise, which is do if-then statements. For each of those steps, do an if-then statement. Um, what are the obstacles that might prevent you from doing any one of those steps? So take one step and say, what are the obstacles? And, and go, okay, if this obstacle comes up, I will then do this thing. So um, my team might be pessimistic. If my team is pessimistic, I'll remind them that we should do this because we, all the evidence supports this. Um, this might occur, you know, and so you just develop if then statements. So before you've encountered that obstacle, you already know that um, that there's a way to get there. And this is important because it's, it's there's evidence that when people say, I mean, the research specifically is on weight loss. It's like, I think I can lose weight. Um, those people, I want to say that's like the fantasy or wishing group. Those people tend to lose weight, um, have a harder time and tend to fail losing weight um, compared to the group that says, um, here are all the obstacles to me losing weight. And for each of these obstacles, this is what I'm going to do when I encounter them. So there's profoundly different results of the two. So if you're a small firm, I would say do that backcasting exercise um, and, and go through those steps. And, and of course, reach out to Erase40 because this is why we exist. Um, and I'm happy to describe it more. Yeah. So Erase40, if you want to learn more, it's erase, like a pencil, erase40.org, 40 the numbers. So erase40.org. Um, go, go check it out. There's a newsletter there. And if you want to connect directly with James, just connect in on the, on the contact form, send him an email. He wants all your email. So go send him an email, say, thank you. Get more information about erase 40 and the meeting map. Um, there's information about the meeting map there as well. James, this has been super interesting and a great conversation. So thanks for being here and sharing your knowledge at Entree Architect Podcast. Yeah, thank you. I've really enjoyed it. This has been a great conversation. So why do our clients make the decisions they make? Why, why do they buy our services over the services of others? You know, I often hear architects concerned about other non-licensed or, or uh, non-registered professionals. And they ask me, how do they compete with them? How do they differentiate themselves 
in the minds of their clients. Well, James provided some very valuable information today throughout this episode. He's focused on on passive house uh, providers, but the lessons that he's sharing here in episode 100, or actually 261, um, are most certainly uh, applicable to all of us here. What is the value of the architect in the mind of the market? How do we present our skills and our services to the market who's seeking them? Head over to entrearchitect.com slash episode 261 and share your thoughts. I want to know. I want to know what you think about behavioral science and, and positioning specific uh, processes and specific steps and specific words to communicate our uh, value to the people that, that uh, we're seeking to communicate that value to. Very, very, very interesting. I love this topic. I had a really great time uh, with James in this episode. Share this episode. Share this episode with a friend. This is entrearchitect.com slash episode 261. And, uh, and share it with a friend. Do that for me. I'd appreciate it. Before you do that, visit entrearchitect.com slash profit calculator and download our free tool to help you calculate the profitability of your small firm. It's simple six steps. It's a simple six step process to see how much profit your small firm is earning. Download the Entree Architect Profit Calculator right now. It's free at entrearchitect.com slash profit calculator. My name is Mark Arlapage, and I'm an entrepreneur architect, and I encourage you to be an entrepreneur architect too. Build a better business so you can be a better architect. Love, learn, and share what you know. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. In drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively, that (laughs) then, you know, in your head, you've rooted like, oh, I'm connected to these people, like long term. The process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges, demanding meticulous planning, flawless execution, and unyielding resilience. I kind of hate the term because it's so overly used, but I think everybody knows imposter syndrome. And I think it's it's so real to this day. I, I, I don't know if it's with everybody, but with me, I'm always questioning like us, can we do this? Are we ready to do this? Are we prepared? Can we do it? Did we just decide a name? <laughs> we did it guys. Oh my One that God. came out of nowhere. 
It came out of nowhere. I liked it. I saw it. Ready to turn your aspirations into reality? Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success. Calling all small firm architects. It's time to tap into your full potential with Entree Architects Context and Clarity, where inspiration meets innovation. Hey, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my two favorite co-hosts, Jeff Eccles and Katie Kangas, as they bring together authors, experts, and thought leaders for electric conversations with entrepreneur architects around the globe. It's not just a podcast. It's a community where dreams meet action. There is a simple equation there. And what for me, what that did, just doing that basic calculation was it allowed me to compare what I had actually saved in my retirement accounts to what I thought a possible projected annual spend might be. Artists are temperamental, so beautiful design is going to be a priority. When the job is done, we're going to actually need to live in the house, not live with the person who designed it. <laughs> and so for me, the, the artistic skill, the architectural skill is most important. And so I would say like that would be 60% of it, if not more. Gain insights to build a successful practice. Subscribe, engage, and let's redefine your future together. Join the Context and Clarity community, where every conversation adds to your blueprint for success.